0: Hey listeners, we're publishing this episode just a month shy of Mother's Day, and if you're looking for more ideas on how to make your way through the upcoming frenzy of advertising that will implore you to celebrate the day with anything from an embossed card to chocolate bars the size of small animals, be sure to go back and listen to episode 13 for tangible suggestions. Take note, though, that episode was recorded in the earliest days of the show, which means be prepared for some not-so-great sound quality. Okay, here's the show. and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Back before you could ask the Google anything from what's the best way to clean my shower grout to how do I grieve my parent, when it came to answering these kinds of questions, we had to go to bookstores and libraries to look things up. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, even if you did go to one of these places to search for information about grief, You'd be more likely to find a dense clinical textbook than something that could actually help you understand what you were going through. In 1994, the Dougie Center had been around for just over a decade, and grief wasn't getting one one-hundredth of the airtime it does today. We talk a lot about how grief resides in the whisper corner, and back in the early 90s, that whisper corner was tucked away deep in the recesses of public discourse. Slowly though, thanks to authors and speakers like today's guests, people started putting words to grief in much more accessible ways. Do you remember the first time you read a book or an article about grief that spoke to your experience? Maybe you were filled with gratitude that someone somewhere understood. But maybe you were overwhelmed with emotions you didn't even know had names. And maybe you could only read a tiny bit at a time, because to take in more would mean being flooded with the thoughts and memories that you had pushed so far aside. 1994 was also the year that Hope Edelman published her groundbreaking book, Motherless Daughters. It was a book that spoke to thousands of women grieving their mothers. Brennan Wood, executive director of the Deggie Center, and also my head boss, was one of those readers. Brennan's mom died of breast cancer three days after her 12th birthday. And Hope's mother also died of breast cancer when Hope was just 17. Soon after the release of Motherless Daughters, Hope and Brennan met for the first time on the Lisa Gibbons daytime talk show. 25 years later, They're together again, joining me today. Hope and Brennan, thank you so much for being on Grief Out Loud today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Brennan, what do you remember about being on stage with Hope?
1: Yeah, so I remember, what I remember most about 25 years ago is reading Hope's book for the first time. Very early on in the book, there was this piece where Hope actually described another writer talking about how if they were to meet someone in a cafe, that they might say something like, you know, I'm five foot eight, I have brown hair, Mm -hmm. and my mom died when I was whatever age that person was. And I, I still, to this day, remember reading that because it was the first probably time that I realized how descriptive it is and how much a part it it becomes of who you are and your identity. Mm -hmm. So then fast forward just a short time later and through the Dougie Center, I had the opportunity to fly to LA and I was 19 and I got to sit on the same stage with Hope and talk about motherless daughters. And of course, at that point, I had you know read every word in the book, probably multiple times. And so I was just... So grateful to be able to be there and in awe of hope, bringing that peace to the world so that other people who had experienced what I had experienced could read it. For me, being 19, it was um, just also, you know being able to look at someone and see them um, having gone through what I had gone through and kind of being able to make meaning out of that, how powerful that was for me.
2: That's, thank you for sharing that, Brennan. You know, I wrote the book because I wanted someone who was 19 like you to have that book, because when I was 19, I didn't. And I was looking for it at 19. It was two years. My mom died when I was 17. So two years later, I was 19 and I was in college. And I remember going to the library at night. And I would study for my exams. And then I would, when, you know, the library sort of emptied out, I would go up and down the stacks looking, you know, in the subject areas where I might find a book about mother loss and especially early mother loss. There was nothing written about it except in the psychological and psychiatric literature. So I love it when I hear from the teenage girls who find the book because I feel like, ah, oh, that's why I did it. I did it, you know, for everyone who lost a mom when they were young, all women, but certainly for the teenage girls. But I love that you remember that article in the that I mentioned in the book because that was actually Anna Quinlan. Oh, was it? Yes. Anna Quinlan had written a column when she was a columnist at the New York Times. And I was in college and my boyfriend at the time clipped it for me and gave it to me. And it was the first time I had ever read anyone writing about losing a mother when they were young. And I had carried it around in my wallet for years. And we didn't have the internet at the time. And I remember my wallet was stolen on the Chicago L train. And I lost that article. And I so mourned the loss of it because it had been for me something that I would take out and just read over. I felt like someone out there understands because it was such a defining event. Yeah,
1: Mm -hmm. that's amazing.
0: Yeah, and we've heard so many stories over the years of how many people who motherless daughters was the first time they found anybody saying anything that they could personally relate to. And people come to a support group in person to get that connection, but to be able to start building those understandings and that Mm -hmm. mirroring of like, thank you, someone sees my
1: experience, even if I'm not sitting face to face with them. I do think even, you know, in my experience, having come to the Dougie Center when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. after my mom died, I did have that in-person support with other kids and other adults who had a parent die. But there was something about reading that book and reading your uh, experience and then also how you brought in all of these other women's experience, even though I had the in-person support was so powerful for me.
2: I didn't know any other women who'd lost their mothers. I knew my sister. Yeah. And there was one other girl in my high school. She was a year younger than me. And, and, I, and I've since become very friendly with her, but we weren't friends at the time. So I had nobody to talk to. And when I started writing the book, remember before the internet, we used to have um, notices that we would put up in cafes with pull tabs along the mm. bottom with the phone numbers. And so when I first started working on this book in the 1990s, I put up notices, I was teaching for the summer outside of Chicago, and I put up notices in a bookstore and a cafe saying if you've lost, your woman who lost a mom when you were young, you know, as a child or teenager, I'd I'd like to talk with you for a book that I'm working on. And I came back the next day and all the tabs had been pulled. Well, the first call I got was from someone I knew in college who was in my dorm, Mm. who said, I think I know you. I had no idea that your mom had died. And I said, I had no idea that your mom had died. And I interviewed her, and I felt like we were breaking that silence together because we hadn't done it in college, right? There were so many stories and so many women out there, and I heard my story repeated and replicated in theirs even if they were a different age and their mom had died to a different cause or their family makeup was different or their ethnicity or their religion or their culture was different there were so many common threads yeah. and I thought oh wow this is uh, this is really something here yeah because uh, I was looking for the pathway out of grief the the stepping stones that are going to lead me out because the five stages didn't do it so there must be some <laughs> other you know <laughs> prescription that I can discover
1: absolutely and I
2: remember in New York, by the time I, you know, got the book contract and was writing it, I was in New York, I had a wonderful editor who also had lost her mom when she was young. And I remember going out for lunch with her and saying, "I've interviewed all these women. And I don't think there's like an answer. And I don't know how I can tell women that that because I was interviewing women forty years later, they were still tearing up in the interview. Of course, they were yes. now, we know. And I, said, I can't tell women that it doesn't ever end. And she said, I think women are going to be really relieved to hear the truth. Mm-hmm. Like, you, if that's what you're finding, then that's the honest story. That's what you need to share. And I think that's why the book hit a nerve, because there were all these women walking around thinking, it should have worked a certain way. And it didn't work that way for me, and I don't want anyone to know. And then somebody said, no, 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 your experience is a very common one, it's very shared. In fact, you didn't grieve wrong, the messages you were getting about grief were probably what was wrong. And there was just like this, I feel like there was this collective exhale when we all found each other.
1: Absolutely, I think that notion that Grief can be these simple steps that you walk through and then you're done with it is something that still is perpetuated in our society, oh, yeah. and it's so wrong. And the reality is is that grief is natural, it's normal, it's healthy, and we grieve our whole lives. It looks different, and it evolves and changes, but it never is done
2: (laughs) it's never over it isn't i'm working on a new book now that's about that exactly it's about what i'm calling the long arc of grief and how it's not something we ever get over or put down or move beyond it's something we carry with us and we carry it with us differently at different times in our lives the way that i've been describing it is that the facts of a death they remain static right my mom will always have died in 1981 when i was 17 and she was 42 of breast cancer. But my relationship to those facts changed over time quite a bit, right? They looked one way when I was 17. They looked a different way when I was motherless daughters in my late 20s. They looked really different when I became a mom at 33. They looked so different when I turned the age she was when Mm. she died, right? My relationship to her and those facts changed, right? They were, they, when I was 17, my mom was old. She was 42, (laughs) right? She'd got married. She'd had kids. She'd had a job. Um, and then I turned 42. I was like, wow, she was so young. And now I'm more than 10 years older than my mother got to be. And so she's to me is now like a much younger peer. She's younger than my siblings are. So my relationship to that loss has changed a lot over time. I carry it really differently now than I did
1: before, but I'm still carrying it. And, Absolutely. And you, have you found the same? Absolutely. It changes over time. And and I think what you just said, that way of, of saying it where the facts stay the same, but your relationship to those facts changes is is Perfect. Because Mm -hmm. as I evolve, as my life changes, the relationship with all of all of those things that I'm still carrying and will always carry changes drastically.
2: And we have all these milestones, some that I knew to expect, like reaching my mom's age at at that time of death and some that I didn't like. There was that time when I thought, well, I'm the same age my dad was when my mom died. What would it be like to be Mm -hmm. left as a single parent now? Or my youngest one just turned 17. And that's how old I was when my mom died. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was coming and I could sort of talk about it. And then right after her 17th birthday, I was so weepy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, it was such an enormous personal achievement to have gotten both of my daughters to 17. I felt like I got them to a point and and I know this, you know, it was just in my mind, but I got them to a point where they're going to be okay if they have to manage without me because my mom got me to that point and I'm okay. My daughter actually might do a a phone call or podcast with me talking about that because I've never really asked them, how do you think it has affected our relationship or the way that I've parented you? Because it does affect the way we parent, right? Absolutely. That's what Motherless Mothers was all about. That was my third book. Yeah. Yeah. And Brennan, you're newly a
0: parent and step-parent to kids, including a kiddo who's grieving, what was that experience? How did that shift your relationship with grief and your understanding of your mom?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. We adopted our third child after the death of both of her parents, and her dad died when she was 10. Her mother died when she was three. And to parent a bereaved child who's now 13, and to see it, my own grief and my experience, of having both my parents died. My mom died when I was 12, as we've talked about, but my dad died when I was 36. And so to parent her through that lens is very interesting and it definitely brings up all of my stuff for sure. I have a, um, a stepdaughter and a stepson, and being a step parent to them brings up so many things. And I think. It has evolved my own grief. I think I'm much more aware of the things that come up for me in the context of them, and not trying to just play out my own grief story on them as their parent and step parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is—it's interesting. I mean, it definitely is there. It's very present during certain moments for it sure. Is. And
2: parenting really requires us to try to distinguish between what is my stuff right? And how can I show up for them and meet their needs rather than having mine get mixed up in it? What's mine? What's theirs? What's ours? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And that can be tough. And you know, I'm sure I don't always get it 100% right. But there's definitely times where I have to say, whoa, this is really bringing up my own story. And my reaction to this isn't their stuff. And it isn't about them. It's about my own story.
0: And speaking of the self part of, of grief, you write in Motherless Daughters about the idea that when a mom dies, oftentimes you have to figure out how to mother yourself. How have you both figured out
2: ways to mother yourselves, and what does that look like? Well, I've, I've been really thinking a lot about this. I'm working a lot about this because I've been leading retreats for motherless women for the past three years, mainly for women who were children and teenagers when their moms died, but also some for women who had adult loss, and we're doing a special one this fall for women who were in their 20s when their moms died, because they've been asking for their own special retreat. But we talk a lot about self-mothering in those retreats, and I've really come to an understanding and an appreciation that self-mothering is about self-kindness and compassion, but also what I've observed and worked with the women on is how much self-mothering is also about mothering our younger selves and identifying what we didn't get or what she you know energetically back there in existence really we do guided meditations to go back and talk to that younger self and ask her what she needs what didn't she get what's she waiting for because the best person and really the only person who's going to give that to her is going to be you as an adult and how can you bring what she needs into your present life, that I think is an amazing form of self-mothering and we see a lot of growth and transformation in the women and they talk about that as a very powerful activity. So many women that I work with say they feel like a piece of them is stuck in the past. That's such a common refrain. I feel like a piece of me got stuck in the past. And that can mean many different things. But I really believe there's also a part of ourselves that's waiting for someone to give us what we didn't get. Because most of us, not all of us now, because there's places like the Dougie Center, but adults who didn't have these services often have grief that was mismanaged. Or unattended and they're waiting for someone to give them something that they needed back then and you know we can go into virtual reality and then bring it into actual reality and do that for ourselves and that's a very powerful form of self-mothering
1: that's amazing and i think that the consciousness around that and the like thoughtfulness around that is so powerful and i think that you know one of the things that we don't give a lot of is permission to feel the true feelings about everything that happened. There is a tendency to anyone who died becomes a saint and everything Mm -hmm. that happened around the death has to be okay because everyone was just doing their best. And I think that there is an opportunity for us to say, absolutely everyone did their best and maybe that wasn't enough. And how do I address that for myself without placing blame without necessarily needing to address that with anyone else how do I work on that for myself for me I think a lot of my own self-mothering has been true forgiveness of anything that I did to navigate those times yes and to get to where I am today and you know I'm I'm happy with my life and I'm happy with who I am in this moment and so therefore everything that it took to get here is okay and right is a part of the journey and there are things that you know coping mechanisms perhaps that you come up with along the way that you have to say okay mm-hmm. it's okay that I did that in that yes. moment it it got me through and now I'm 43 years old and I can choose different <laughs> different ways of coping
2: I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, when we at the retreats, we talk about releasing judgment around the circle and to not judge each other, but also to try to release self-judgment. Yeah. Because a lot of the women will come to the retreats because the coping and survival strategies they developed when they were younger to get through those hard times, especially without adult assistance in yeah. many cases were very resourceful, and we say, yay you, younger (laughs) self, you came up with ways to get through a really difficult time, but they find often as adults that they're relying on those same familiar strategies, and they've outlived their utility, Yes, and they're no longer working, and then sometimes they're actually hurting them. And like, let's say for example, that you had to learn how to take care of yourself and be independent. I hear Mm -hmm. that one a lot. Well, that's amazing that as a 14, 15, 16 year old or even younger, you develop the skills to get yourself out of the house, into college, into a job, whatever it was. But you may find that you're now 30 or 35 and this extreme independence doesn't allow you to rely on other people. And so we talk about, okay, let's identify what your strategies were, which ones are still working for you, let's hold on to them. Which ones aren't working? How can you let go of them? What can we replace them with? Let's let the group and the circle be some of the support that you need, test out some of those strategies with us. And then we, that's when we start seeing real change and growth. Brennan wondering, can you connect to that idea of being <laughs> extremely self-reliant and having a
0: hard
1: time relying on other people? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of us who experienced early mother loss had to figure it out and figure out a way to move ourselves forward and move our lives forward uh, right. without necessarily a lot of the support that we needed at that moment to then examine that and say, Do I need to be incredibly self-reliant or can I open up to partnership or to be able to delegate at work or any of those things that perhaps we haven't done so well in the past because we feel like we have to do it all ourselves? Yes.
2: And, you know, I believe that one of the drawbacks of the 20th century was that we started thinking as a culture of grief as primarily a psychological or psychiatric experience, right? And it it really is, um, it can be a physical experience. So there's more appreciation for that now. It's obviously, you know, an emotional experience, as psychology has told us, but it's a cultural experience. There's a lot more appreciation now for the cultural variations. Um, But it's also a social experience, or I think was meant to be a social experience and we really lost a lot of that in the 20th century. So support groups like you offer here at the Dougie Center and like the retreats bring some of that social component back in. But there's also a very practical component to grieving. For adults, that's often making the arrangements, figuring out how to keep the family going. But for the children, it's about figuring out how to get their needs met, not just their emotional needs, but also their just survival needs. And that's where the independence often takes over. Yeah, and that the
0: first question a kiddo might ask when they get the news that mom has died. is like, well, who who's going to take me to soccer practice? Gonna and
2: who's going to make my with? snack?
0: Because that's the adult who has done that. And if
2: it's a single mom, who's, who am I going to live with? Where am I going to live? You mm-hmm. know? Yeah.
0: So Hope and Brennan, we're recording in April, and that means that Mother's Day in the United States is right around the bend. And knowing that that holiday comes with all kinds of layered emotions for folks, so folks Mm -hmm. who have had a mom die, but also maybe people who are estranged from their mom Mm -hmm. or have a very complex relationship Brennan, you've been through how many Mother's Days
1: now? 31. 31. Say, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you went through 31 Mother's Days as a grieving daughter. Yes. And now you're also parenting a grieving daughter.
1: Yes. What's that day like for you? Yeah. Uh, this last Mother's Day, when taking my daughter. And myself to the church where both of our moms are buried because her mom was my first cousin so both of our moms are at the same church and I described it as a day with more layers than an onion uh, because here I am uh, grieving my mother's death grieving her mother's death for her and then also mothering her and it's very complex I think the place that I have come to over 31 years of Mother's Days is the idea that my life is my prayer to my mother and my, I live in my mother's love and that therefore Mother's Day has to become an extension of that prayer and that love in order mm-hmm. for me to uh, connect with it in some way. I can't have it be just another day where I'm miserable and miss my mom Uh, at this point. It it was for many years a day where I was miserable and I missed my mom. Mm -hmm. And now days like Mother's Day, like my mother's birthday, like the anniversary of her death day have to be something where I connect with her and connect with myself in a loving way.
2: And I agree with you completely, Brennan. The best way I think that anyone can honor their mom, if they had a good relationship with their mom, right, because we can't always assume that someone does. There are moms out there who don't connect with their children or aren't connecting with their children. But if you had a good, close, warm, loving relationship with your mom and you're missing her, I say, uh, think about what values of hers you embody and want to carry forward and find a way to express those values. on that day. Mm. You know, my mom was very altruistic. Mm. My mom was a a big time volunteer and she instilled in us a sense of public service and social justice. So I try to always make Mother's Day or Mother's Day weekend about doing that work and finding some way to work that into the weekend. And it's usually because there are luncheons for motherless daughters all around the world that Saturday. There's an opportunity then to go and help other women right, cope with their losses and talk about it these these subjects. And so I feel like doing that work is honoring my mother. Whatever values your mom embodied or instilled in you to carry them forward on Mother's Day, I think is the best way to honor the people that we love who are no longer here. And always
0: a, a great reminder that sometimes the day isn't as hard as the lead up. To the day. And I think that can be really surprising for folks that right around maybe early mm-hmm. mid April, because the advertisements are already starting. It's like, what is going on? Like, oh, right, that is coming up so soon. And then there's so much that goes into the lead up. They right. get to the actual day, maybe a plans already been made, and the day's like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I was right. anticipating. Right. So if you're someone out there listening and you're in the support system of someone who's grieving their mom,
2: remembering to start maybe reaching out long before Mother's Day even arrives. Right. And, and now, especially with email and social media, that lead up week is full of triggers, you know, with those emails saying, don't forget to call your mom on Mother's Day. Have you ordered flowers for your mom yet? Right. So the anticipation is often and the lead up, like you said, is often worse than the day it's, or harder than the day itself. And that's why the luncheons exist. We started them in New York City in 1996. It's amazing. And now they take place in dozens of cities in the U.S., Canada. Australia's got three this year. Four, actually. Four. Canberra joined this year. So there's Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, and um, one other. And um, they're in the U.K. and sometimes in Dubai and all over. Because women want a place to come honor their mothers on Mother's Day weekend, and they want to do it socially. You know, this long arc of grief really does have a social component, and they want to be able to do it in the company of other women who understand that it's not grim or upsetting to recognize your mother on Mother's Day if she's no longer alive. That in fact it helps women feel good, right? It's Absolutely. that's how they're continuing the bond. We yes. know that. You know, that was the the next, the most recent wave of grief theory is that we need to stay connected to the people who've died, not them behind yes and you know even Freud who was the one who told us that this is the work of mourning is to detach and leave them behind a few years later discovered after his daughter died that his own theory in fact was not right he that it didn't work in practice right that it in fact that was not how he was experiencing grief but by then it had taken on a life of
1: his own yeah its own it was too late it's such a reminder that the people who know what grief is about it are the grievers? And you know we we say, You know, there's people who say, oh, well, we're, you know, we're the experts on grief. And at the Dougie Center, we talk all the time about, no, it's the grievers that are the experts in their own grief. In their own
2: grief. They're the experts of their own grief, right? Well, you know where there's that saying is that the best parents are the people who don't have children, (laughs) because they're the ones who always share their, right, their opinions and their experiences, right? So the people who aren't grieving always act like they're the ones who know what, you know, how you should be grieving, which really means that they want you to act a way so they don't have to feel uncomfortable, Um, especially if they don't know how to respond or what to say.
0: Brennan, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier around when you first read Hope's book, Motherless Daughters, of having a mom die being such a defining characteristic in your life and that guiding and shaping so many decisions. And I'm curious for both of you how the concept of that, of your mom's death being just so integral to your identity, how that has shifted over time.
1: That's a great question. I think that perhaps for me it has become something that's indistinguishable from my other characteristics I think in the beginning it felt like this piece of me that I had to give words to in order to validate the importance of how much it was a part of me and I think over time that has softened for me because it just is a part of me and a part of Mm -hmm. the fabric of who I am and so therefore I don't always need to call it out as much. Um, It is interesting that my whole entire career has been devoted to helping grieving kids and families, and certainly that would not be the case if my mom hadn't died. So perhaps I don't need to call attention to it as much because it is just a part of my daily life. For me, the analogy I use very much in the beginning of grief over my mother's death, I was dropped into the middle of the ocean and the waves were unrelenting and I could barely come up for air before another wave pummeled me (laughs) and over time that softened and the storm lessened and... Now I'm walking on the beach, and I am always aware that the ocean is there, and every once in a while it will a wave will will hit me. Right. But it's a completely different experience than it was when my mom first died. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and the same here is that it's become such a big part of my professional life. And I talk about it so frequently now that it's hard to imagine how it might have evolved otherwise. Mm-hmm. One thing I can say is that because it's such a big part of my professional life and I talk about it so much, sometimes I feel like I need to just retreat and remember that I have a private relationship with my mom, not mm. just a public one. Um, but when I was younger, my family was one of the families that wouldn't talk about her after she died. We, not only did we not talk about her grief or her death, we didn't even talk about her life because it was wow. it was so upsetting. And only you know recently have I gone back and really thought about those first few years after her death and realized that every time I'd have to answer a question about my mom, like even answering the question, are both of your parents coming, would send me into like, my heart would start beating very quickly and my limbs would go numb. And and I was having traumatic stress responses, right? Because it had never been addressed. And that silence not only created this sense of ongoing trauma, but it created a sense of shame so that I felt like I needed to hide it from other people because it made me so
1: different from the other kids. Did you feel that way too? Yes, I think that it absolutely made me feel different from the other kids. And I was very lucky to be able to come to the Dougie Center within about six to nine months of my mother's death. And I think that having that experience Mm -hmm. shifted that for me because at the Dougie Center, kids share their story every time they come. They talk about the person who died. Getting comfortable with that story really changed my response. Right. My, you know, my biological response to those types of questions was very different after having the opportunity to come to the Dougie Center.
2: You are of the generation right after mine, right? Because the Dougie Center started in 1982 here, but there were no bereavement services in my community in 81 or for a long time after. I grew up in the suburbs of New York. Yeah. So that's a big difference. Yes. People who lost parents in the 70s or the 80s, anywhere else, didn't have those kinds of support services, and so... Our stories over the long haul would be different than than kids who were getting that sense that there's a place to go talk about it. This is a story that I can share and I can carry instead of one that I have to hide from everybody.
1: Absolutely. It's a completely different experience to learn at 12 years old that my reaction to my mother's death was absolutely normal. And... That Mm. there wasn't anything wrong with me for feeling the way that I felt.
2: That would have been life-changing for me and others who had lost a parent around that time.
1: And I say all the time that the Dougie Center saved my life.
2: Yes. I hear, I get emails from readers frequently that say, your book changed my life. Yeah. And I think, wow, what an amazing gift that there could be a book that exists let's separate me from having written that book that a book has the power right that words have the power to change somebody's life like yeah. that but it's not just the words it was the stories in there it was them discovering just like you did in those groups that what you were feeling was common that it was acceptable that I don't like using the word normal you know because normative I right. think we should but yeah but I just this idea that you were not alone and what i've found is that right after a loss people want to be with others who understand what it's like to be in that space right that that space where you feel like you're going crazy and Everything else in the world is normal and nothing feels normal for you and you don't know, and you can't sleep and you can't eat or people want the comfort of knowing that what they're going through right now is, is, is shared by others. But I find that over the decades, over years, then we want to get more specific. Hope, as you were talking about that, it
0: makes me think about when folks come to the Dougie Center or any type of opportunity, your retreats or just a chance to be in the room with other people who are grieving. It's like exhale on the commonality. Now there's some space to look at what isn't common. What is unique about my experience? What was unique about my relationship with my mom? What was unique about me at that age? Mm -hmm. And that allow it opens up the door for people to really get to know themselves and know their grief and know that their parent, that they're grieving. But it feels like that commonality has got to be the first place to start.
2: I agree. And when I wrote Motherless Daughters, I was really focusing on those commonalities because that was how we were building community. But now I'm gaining a much greater appreciation of the differences, and one of the questions that we are asking now at the retreats is, was there a culture or religion that was important to you? Let's also look at our grief within a context. What era? Because history creates an important context. Culture, You maybe you were living in a bicultural family or you lost a parent in a different country and then came to America. And how did that play into it? And let's learn from each other and support each other in our differences as well as our commonalities. Yeah, we've been talking about that a lot more in our groups too, of how our race, our culture, our
0: gender identity, our sexual orientation, yes. our access to economic resources—all those things yes. can go into how one we experience our grief, and then what permission we feel like we have and don't have to express that grief. It's so important for people to be able to say, like, what what's my identity, and how does that interplay with my grief?
2: It is, and that's you know that's where I think grief grief support is going in the twenty first century.
0: Well, Hope and Brennan, thank you so much for being part of this conversation as we talk about the importance of building community and connection. Doing a podcast allows people who maybe aren't ha- don't have ability to come to a support group or aren't in a place where they can come to one of your retreats, but they can tune in today and just hear your story. So thank you for being part of creating that vast ability for people to
2: connect remotely. And thank both of you for the work that you do here at the Dougie Center and what the Dougie Center does for other centers worldwide, because you really are changing lives.
1: Thank you, and thank you for all that you have done for me personally oh, and for the world. It's so good to see you again. <laughs> twenty five years later. Let's not wait another twenty five years. Please,
0: please. <laughs> well, I'll be here in twenty five years for reunion tour. And we'll be back. Great.
2: <laughs> the great. fifty the fiftieth anniversary. <laughs>
0: So listeners, stay tuned. 25 years, we'll be back for reunion <laughs> podcast. And uh, thank you for being part of our audience. You two are building a community with us. If you are new to our show, you can find us at dougy.org. If you're new to Hope and her work, I will be linking to all of the ways that you can get in touch with her and learn more about the exciting work she's doing with retreats and the new book that she's working on. If you want to know about Brennan, just come to our website. She's there too. So thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.